Thank everybody for coming. My name is Doug Bondo. I'm a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. I uh, spend much of my, my time worrying about North Korean nuclear weapons, but occasionally I get to get into more interesting things and step back a bit and look at more transcendent issues and how they affect American policy. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. I certainly thank you all for coming. If I could just mention, please turn off or mute your uh, cell phones. We'd appreciate it so we don't have any unexpected uh, interruptions during the talk. You know, I think this is a very good time for reflecting on these issues. We live in a world in many ways uh, you know, at, at war. We certainly we saw the horrors of uh, the Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. More than 300 people killed in an attack, very clearly religiously oriented, people at worship in Sunday services. Before that, we saw in New Zealand an attack on people in mosques. We see how religion has been drawn into politics and how people are attacked for being faithful, how religion has been twisted to justify the most heinous crimes. And uh, you know, so I think it's worth stepping back a bit from that. <clears throat> the, uh, I mean, this is, I think, an extraordinarily important you know, panel that uh, what we're talking about in many ways looking at the United States is more mundane. We're not talking about terrorism today. That's kind of at the, the far edge. But uh, when you think about American politics, we see uh, people of faith drawn into the political process very controversially. The role of American evangelicals, for example, is very strong supporters of the president. We see you know, progressives involved. Uh, Mayor Pete, I won't try to pronounce his last name, but we see somebody who is gay and professes himself to be a Christian and, and takes progressive positions on political issues, I think offering an alternative. Somebody speaking of the importance of faith but coming out in a different place in politics. So the role of politics, uh, or the role of religion in politics remains, I think, a very important one. What we want to do is step back from uh, politics directly, and I think what do what Washington very seldom does, is think a bit more about the transcendent, think a bit more about the philosophical and, uh, you know, the, and theological foundations of what goes on uh, in uh, America, you know, a, a, a land of liberty, we like to say, a commercial republic, a, 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 this sort of thing. The, uh, you know, when liberalism came of age in the uh, 18th, 19th centuries, uh, in many ways it attacked or it was seen as contrary to Christendom at the time. There was quite a struggle, especially with the Catholic Church, the role of how that political order would shape uh, and be shaped by uh, religious views. I mean, in many ways, I think we see politics today in America, they've in certain ways fused. You know, at least at some point, it uh, you know, appeared that if you were a conservative Christian, your first doctrine was to believe in the free market. I happen to believe in the free market. It's not clear to me it's in the Bible. Nevertheless, you know, we've seen, I think, in many ways, a transformation of those attitudes, and now we see a bit of a shift back. Uh, people like uh, Patrick Deenan, for example, and others who have been very critical and arguing that true conservatives and a true conservatism you know, has to turn away from this kind of liberal ethos and that if you want a true Christianity, uh, Rod Dreyer is another, and people who are critiquing you know, this. And it's certainly a challenge for Islam. And I think you know, Islam, you know, sometimes people talk about what Islam needs is a Reformation or a second you know, Vatican or Vatican II. You know, the question of what is the role of Islam and uh, you know, liberalism as well. To what extent does the liberal political order, is it consistent with, is it fertile ground for, or is it a problem for faith, whether it be Christianity or Islam or perhaps you know, other faiths as well. I think that we have a, a very good panel here. We have uh, you know, two members of whom I know quite well, another I know by reputation that uh, you know, I think uh, you know, we'll have a very good discussion. 
Uh, you know, starting us off will be Joe LaConte. Joe and I met uh, years ago at the Heritage Foundation. That uh, Joe has moved around since then. He's now at King's College in New York City. He had a wonderful article in National Interest discussing these issues, critiquing you know, the question of this kind of new conservative critique of liberalism and Christianity. I think a book that uh, if any of you are Tolkien uh, fans that you would want to pick up, uh, A Hobbit, A Wardrobe, and A Great War, I think uh, kind of showing the breadth of his interests beyond the pure politics. And he's also written a number of other books, uh, God, Locke, and Liberty, you know, The Searchers, A Quest for Faith in the Valley of Doubt, and others. He's been affiliated at different points with other uh, you know, groups as well, been at Pepperdine University, et cetera. Very well qualified for this. Our second speaker is going to be Mustafa Akil, uh, you know, someone who I think is an extraordinary addition for the uh, Cato Institute here in Washington. Someone who has really taken on in many ways the, I think, perhaps critical issue of, uh, of the age in terms of religion, which is the role of Islam and liberalism, you know, the question of a future. You know, for Islam, he's a, a Turkish journalist and author, has written uh, for the New York Times opinion section since 2013, uh, recently wrote a book, Islam Without Extremes, A Muslim Case for Liberty. Uh, this book uh, was banned in Malaysia. You know, he could tell you about that experience. It, it appears that he is not fundamentalist enough for uh, the religious teachers you know, there. I mean, I think it shows the challenge here. Again, we see Islam itself grappling with this issue in that sense of, is this a book that from their standpoint is undermining what they view as the true faith? He's also an author of The Islamic Jesus, How the King of the Jews Became a Prophet of Muslim. Uh, of, and I think this shows you know, kind of trying to find a common ground between Christianity and Islam Something that, uh, when you reflect upon the events that we see in the world of violence, is desperately needed. That we have these great monotheistic faiths that, in my view, you know, should respect and reflect kind of commonalities as opposed to differences, yet they seem to dwell on those differences. You know, finally, <clears throat> we have, and I've been told I need to flash, flash the book for Daniel Philpott here, <laughs> and encourage all of you, author of Religious Freedom in Islam, I mean, again, and obviously a very important topic, a professor of political science at Notre Dame, author of a number of books, uh, Revolutions and Sovereignty, <clears throat> How Ideas Shaped Modern International Relations, uh, contributor to uh, God's Century, Resurgent Religion and Global Politics. Obviously an issue of extraordinary interest because we see that. I think one of the transformations that really affects Islam is you think of the changes in these societies that we seem to see of an Afghanistan, for example, at one point to see much more liberal than Indonesia. Just had a presidential election, but a country you see a lot more fundamentalist influences. What is happening with Islam these days? Uh, another book, uh, Just and Unjust Peace, an Ethic of Political Reconciliation. I mean, many of these topics I think are uh, very uh, topical for today. What I've asked is each of the speakers to give us a short uh, commentary uh, kind of on these topics, and then we'll, I'll pose a couple of questions, and then we will open it up to you all to broaden the discussion and take your questions as well. So. Can I use the podium? Absolutely. Great. I'm slightly more energized than a podium. <laughs> How's everybody doing back there? Can you hear me back there in the bleacher seats, yeah? Good? Yeah. Terrific, all right. Well, thank you, uh, Doug, for that introduction. Thank you, Mustafa and the Cato Institute for this uh, great opportunity to speak here to you guys on a, a topic that I think is, it, it's just so important to wrestle with some of these questions about the nature of our liberal democracy. What has gone wrong? Why has it gone wrong? I'm an historian now uh, by profession, so I want to try to offer a little historical perspective on this, guys. I will be brief, I promise. I think every good talk, and especially every good sermon, this is not a sermon, but every good sermon can be improved by being cut in half. 
So I've done the editing already, so we'll keep it very brief and we'll keep the train moving here. Look, there are a lot of people on the cultural left who think that uh, political liberalism is and ought to be the enemy of traditional religion, and they're, they're happy about that. Uh, I think many on the left want their particular vision of liberalism to render religious belief irrelevant and to keep people of faith confined to their little sanctuaries. That's out there. Others, though, especially the, some on the cultural and religious right, they also believe that liberalism erodes traditional religious belief. And they think this is what liberalism was designed to do. Catholic political scientist Patrick Deneen, uh, he argues that the liberal project was essentially steeped in sin from its birth. When liberalism dissolves our moral commitments to one another, when it stigmatizes our faith communities, according to Patrick Deneen, it is being true to itself true to itself. I think that both sides in this debate, on the left and on the right, I think they misconstrue the foundations of liberal democracy, and I don't think they've got the, a, a strong enough grip on the nature of authentic religious belief. Maybe that's intellectual laziness, maybe it's something else, but I think both sides have embraced a thoroughly false and ironically militantly secular view of the historic rise of the liberal democratic project. And I'll unpack with that, what I mean by that in a minute here. But this liberal democratic project helped to make possible the renewal of religious belief in the West, I would argue. It was this liberal democratic project that uh, properly understood that enshrined the concept of religious freedom, freedom of conscience, in the culture and in the institutions of the West. The conservative critics of liberalism, I don't think they've taken their historical task seriously enough. And I think by failing to attend carefully to the past, they can't really understand the current predicament or offer a meaningful uh, advice about the path forward into the future. Let me just take a moment with this history about the liberal project. It began, it began as a response to the sins of Christendom. The sins of Christendom. What sins? Let me just name a few here. The denigration of individual conscience, the criminalization of dissent, the corrosive entanglement of church and state, the hedonism of clerical leadership, and the deeply rooted anti-Semitism. I would argue that the Catholic medieval project, for all of its achievements, and some of them are truly remarkable and positive, but for all of its achievements, it failed to uphold one of the most transformative ideas of the Jewish and Christian traditions. What idea? The freedom and the dignity of every human soul. And that was a catastrophic failure. And that failure, I would argue, generated a robustly Christian response. The liberal project began as an attempt to build a more just society. How? <laughs> By appealing, believe it or not, to the life and teachings of Jesus. Listen to John Locke on this one in his letter concerning toleration. If the gospel and the apostle may be credited, Locke said, no man can be a Christian without charity and without that faith which works not by force, but by love. This was the Lockean basis for religious freedom, an appeal to the moral example of Jesus. Combined, yes, combined, with the principle of equal justice under the law. Equal justice under the law, regardless of religious belief. So the father of political liberalism sought a renewed commitment to authentic Christianity, uncoerced Christianity, as the foundation for a pluralistic society. 
For guys like Locke, the problem wasn't religion. The problem was the decline of genuine faith, a spiritual corruption aided and abetted by a culture of coercion. And what were the results of that culture of coercion, have I suggested? The Europe of Locke's day was a persecuting society. Here's how Locke put it in his letter. No peace and security. No, not so much as common friendship can ever be established or preserved amongst men as long as this opinion prevails that religion is to be propagated by force of arms. No peace, no security, not even friendship with that idea. So the liberal project, by insisting on the separation of church and state, offered the pathway toward religious renewal and to a more just and humane society. So now the question then is, well, what has the Lockean vision of a just commonwealth produced, particularly in the United States? What effect has it had on religion? And I'd, I'd like to quote a few lines here from Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America. He's always a good guy to quote. Uh, and this is, you know, de Tocqueville in the 1830s. So he's, you know, 60 some odd years after the start of this Lockean liberal project. And what does he say here? Just a couple of lines, if I could. What he's observing as a French Catholic coming there from the European scene, what does he see? Here's what he sees. He says, um, <laughs> I love his comments about the Europeans. He says, there's a certain European population whose disbelief is equaled only by their brutishness and ignorance. Whereas in America, one sees one of the freest and most enlightened peoples in the world, equally fulfill all the external duties of religion. On my arrival in the United States, he says, it was the religious aspect of the country that first struck my eye. Among us, the Europeans, I had seen the spirit of religion and the spirit of freedom almost always move in contrary directions. Here in America, I found them united intimately with one another. They reigned together on the same soil the spirit of religion, and the spirit of freedom on the same soil. That's what he saw, one of the most careful observers of the American scene, the impact of the separation of church and state. And he goes on to just lay it out. All the ministers he spoke to said the vitality of religion in America is due to the separation of church and state. He just lays it out. Well, uh, guys like Locke, as they are today, uh, it seems to me, if you read Patrick Deneen carefully, Locke was, was initially attacked uh, as an atheist. One critic uh, compared Locke to one of those locusts that arose from the smoke of the bottomless pit. And uh, the amazing thing is that by the 18th century, Locke's combination of Christian piety, Christian faith, and natural rights, that combination, was sounded from the pulpits on both sides of the Atlantic. And yet today, as I'm suggesting, today we hear Christian conservatives, some rejecting liberal democracy with its emphasis on individual freedom. Let me quote you from Patrick Deneen. Locke writes that the law works to increase liberty, Deneen says, by which he means our liberation from the constraints of the natural world, our liberation from the constraints of the natural world. Ron Reno at the Catholic Journal First Thing says this, Locke's ideal society is a free association of individuals unbound by duties that transcend their choices. Unbound by duties that transcend their choices. In other words, radical individualism is what they believe Locke was setting out to try to achieve. I think they've got it completely, mis completely wrong. I think some of these conservatives are kind of steeped in a nostalgia for a pre-modern medieval world. And they blame our modern social problems on the wicked, corrosive ideas of Lockean liberalism. So I would, I would put the question to them, and I'd put it this way if they were uh, here in the audience. Which ideas exactly 
are so corrosive of religious belief and moral commitments. Which ideas? Is it the idea of human equality and human freedom based on the proposition that every person bears the image of God? Is it the idea that the rights of conscience are sacred and can't be coerced by church or state? Is it the idea that impartial justice, the golden rule, must be the cornerstone of any democratic society? Or how about the idea that the desire to know God, to find peace with God, is inherent in every human soul and that the state must respect this desire or forfeit its legitimacy? Are these the ideas that threaten religious belief and have somehow shipwrecked the liberal order? Friends, and as an historian, I can tell you it was these concepts, on the contrary, that helped the West to recover its Christian conscience. John Locke, a founding father of political liberalism, defended all of these ideas, as did James Madison. The American Revolution was, in many ways, a Lockean revolution, and it still has the power to inspire. Writing in the New York Times, my dear friend Mustafa, in a nod to Locke, offered an op-ed called A Letter Concerning Muslim Toleration. I assume you, you do not disavow this op-ed, right? All right, great. Here's what Mustafa read, wrote a couple of years ago. If Islamic thought is to liberalize today, he says, it must take a Lockean leap. When I read that line a few years ago, I just wanted to crack open a bottle of Prosecco. I'm telling you, man, exactly right. A Lockean leap. Now more than ever, we need that Lockean leap, both at home and abroad. Although he's considered a modern thinker, Locke helped to retrieve one of the gifts of historic Christianity. What's the gift? A narrative of grace and freedom that can defeat a culture of bigotry and oppression. Locke reminded us that every human heart, every human heart whispers its desire for the mansions of the blessed, for a glimpse of that bright kingdom that lies beyond the sea. We could use another John Locke, ladies and gentlemen, or someone like him in our latest hour of crisis. Thanks for listening. Me or him? Or... Okay. <clears throat> well, thank you, Joe, for the wonderful talk and reference, and it's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to hear all this. Now, I was reading Joe's article a few days ago, which you can find outside. It's printed, and it's really a great article, I think, uh, worth checking. Thanks, sir. And uh, I was reading the parts about the persecutions done in the name of Christianity in pre-modern, pre-liberal Europe. It reminded me of a trip I had to Montepulciano, a city probably you would know, in, in Tuscany, in Italy. I mean, if you go to Italy, if you go to Tuscany, go to Montepulciano. It's a beautiful place up on a hill and great food and architecture and everything. Prosecco, too, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> but there is a place called... Museum of Torture, also in Montepulciano. And you go in there, and you see all these rusty iron devices that were used to tear bodies into pieces in the most horrible ways. I mean, I don't want to describe it. And, I, and, and the, you see the history of it, and some of these were used by church authorities against heretics, against witches, and all those. And, of course, there's a history of the Spanish Inquisition and so on and so forth there. I mean... Uh, I saw it in Montepulciano in the 2000s, and I remember saying, well, it's not just us who has a problem <laughs> with, <laughs> with religious fanatics or religious persecution and authoritarianism and so on and so forth. Of course, that's history in the history of Christianity, and that's long gone. And, and, uh, 
But that was made possible, well, I mean, then we'll explain how it happened in Catholicism, but in the Protestant world that was made possible by people like John Locke, by Enlightenment thinkers who said, well, heretics should not be persecuted. It was a very you know, progressive idea at the time. Now, uh, now, looking at this history from the perspective of Islam is, is I think, important today because I have always felt that uh, religions can be used for persecution, for authoritarianism, but it can be compatible with a free, open society. It has happened in Christianity. It can happen in Islam. We should work on it. That has been my vision. But now I read uh, intellectuals like Deneen or Dreyer who are saying, liberalism is so bad, liberalism is so terrible. First of all, I want to take them to Montepulciano to the torture museum so they can, <laughs> they, they can get a better sense of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And of course, there are problems in modern societies, but we should compare it to the alternatives. Like, there are problems in capitalist societies, but compare it to you know, Stalin and all that. I mean, let's see the alternatives here. Uh, but from Islamic perspective, here's what I can say. Actually, in the pre-modern era, Islam wasn't bad at all in, in terms of these values, human rights values. It, at times, it was better because Islam, in the big, from the very beginning, had rejected the idea of forced, forced conversion. That's why Christians and Jews remained in predominantly Muslim lands for centuries. They're now being wiped out by groups like ISIS terrorists, but they were there for centuries, and there's, there's a reason for that. That's why Jews fled from Europe at times and came to the Ottoman Empire and other Islamic lands. Um, however, with the advent of modernity, with the advent of the idea of human rights, religious freedom, freedom of speech, and with the stagnation of Muslim Islamic law in most Muslim societies, the gap became very clear today. Uh, yet still, liberalism had advances in the Muslim world in the past two centuries. That's why there are constitutional governments in many parts of the Muslim world. The Ottoman Empire began implementing many reforms in the 19th centuries. They changed penal code. Corporal punishments were gone, for example. I've written about these issues recently. Uh, however, there is certainly a resistance in the Muslim world against liberalism in the very basic sense of the word, uh, in the name of Islam. I mean, I've seen that in Malaysia, for example. My book has been banned and rebanned again this week because it promotes liberalism. Actually, in Malaysian authorities, give sermons in the mosques condemning liberalism and human rights-ism. It always goes together, liberalism and human rights-ism. So human rights-ism is an idea that promotes uh, falsehood like people are equal, or you know, uh, people should have the freedom to change or uh, you know, have, reject their religion and so on and so forth. So in Islam, this is happening. Why? Because we have, uh, I mean, we have something that the Christians don't have, and they don't have to deal with this problem that much, which is the legal aspect of the religion, Sharia. In, in Christianity, there were church laws, but it's not as integral. In Judaism, it was integral, but in Judaism, it didn't become a state law for 2,000 years for political reasons. So in Islam, how do we approach Sharia and how do we change it? Or the interpretation of Sharia, which is jurisprudence, fiqh, which is to put it more precisely, is a big issue. And there are people who are saying we should understand that it's contextual, it's God's word, but God spoke in a context and we can go forward from that. There are people who are making that argument. And, and it's a long, and Dan has a great book actually, you know, uh, he can spoke, speak a little bit about that if he wants, showing these seeds of freedom in Islam, how we can reapproach the Sharia with the perspective of freedom, which you can find in the Quran, for example. Quranic verses like no compulsion in religion. However, 
lot of Muslims are hesitant to, to still take this Lockean leap. I think one reason is that uh, they think that if you enter liberalism, there will be freedom and you will be free from the religious morality itself. You will abandon everything you believe in because there is freedom. You will be doing cocaine parties and orgies every day, I mean, to put it in a caricaturish <laughs> way. <laughs> well, we should put it right. Freedom doesn't compel you to abandon your religion. It doesn't even advise you or encourage you to do that. Freedom just gives you a vacuum. And it is your job to fill that vacuum. You can be a very pious, conservative Muslim and live fully in a free society. You would have problems in France, which is not maybe fully freedom when it comes to, you know, headscarves and issues like that. I mean, but in a fully free society, you can live like the Amish. You can even create a community that is conservative, but you don't have to define the whole structure. So therefore, I think it is important. There are some people who would say, we need coercion for actually sustaining our religion. I mean, a scandalous view uh, from the Islamic point of view was from, for example, by Sheikh Yusuf Karadawi. Uh, several years ago, he said in a TV uh, program, if we didn't execute apostates, Islam wouldn't be here as it is here today. I mean, he said this probably, I mean, without assuming that it would, it would look, it wouldn't look bad. Well, lot, to a lot of people, including myself, it looks bad, right? I mean, I mean, if you're saying that without coercing people, we can't keep them in our religion, that doesn't look good for your religion, right? I mean, you sh your religion should be holding people in because it's convincing them, it's inspiring them. And I think Karadawi is one of the people probably who didn't get it right. There are people like that in the Muslim world, but there are other people who see this problem and it's going. Uh, so, so therefore, I think we should all understand, of course, liberalism brings a new responsibility to religions, which is to defend yourself, articulate yourself, revitalize yourself in a more energetic way. I mean, in, a, in an illiberal society, you can ban all the atheist books, you can jail all the atheists, and you know, your children will never hear about somebody who says there is no God. So they won't be confused about that. Well, that word is not any possible anymore in the modern world, so it's just a losing strategy. But in a liberal society, in an open society, atheist books will be there, atheist people will be there, critics of religion will be there, alternative religions will be there. Then, well, you have a job to do. You have to argue against them. With reason, you have to show why your religion is more persuasive. And you can't convince everybody, but that's your job. And, and actually, religions flourish intellectually in environments like that. That's also another thing. Like in Islam, we had great uh, intellectual flourishing in early Islam when Muslim scholars read Aristotle, Plato, Greek philosophy, struggled with that and f tried to find arguments and so on and so forth. Uh, there has been a great flourishing in the late Ottoman Empire in the 19th century Arab world as well. When you close yourself down, yes, you can remain religious conservative, but you will actually be de-intellectualizing yourself. You'll be losing your sophistication and everything. So I think that's a choice ahead of all religious communities, but I think, uh, especially at this day and age when, where humanity has become, there's no way going back from, there's no reason to go back from the liberal accomplishment which saves us from the persecutions and so on and so forth. Finally, one person, one can ask, why would Muslims need to get into this, right? Why would, why don't just live in their pre-modern world? I mean, first of all, it's not possible. Secondly, there's a great motivation, actually, to accept liberalism, 
in the Muslim world today, and it's coming. It is precisely the motivation which triggered liberalism in Europe, which is seeing all the persecution, all the violence, all the bigotry done in the name of religion. I see this coming in the Muslim world, and that's a good thing. I mean, it's a horrible thing that ISIS is killing people in the name of Islam. Mm -hmm. But, but be, be aware that a lot of Muslims are seeing this and are saying, there's something deeply wrong with this. So they will either go fully secular, or maybe they will embrace a more liberalism-friendly Islam. And I think what Muslims who are really conscientious about their faith should work on the latter option. Otherwise, the other option will be a very anti-religious uh, strain in the Muslim world that's coming. Excellent. Thank you. Excellent. Dan. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. And uh, so honored, honored to be here at Cato and uh, admire your commitments to freedom. And great to be here with these two wonderful uh, interlocutors. In a sense, my um, uh, coming to these, this table, I bring maybe three different commitments. One is a champion and advocate of religious freedom. Second of all is um, a Catholic and, and with a strong interest in the Catholic Church's road to religious freedom. We're kind of a Johnny-come-lately, 1965, we finally got around to it. <laughs> but um, but, but thir third is author, author of this book on Islam and, and religious freedom. And in a sense, those things uh, come together. Um, in my book on Islam and religious freedom, I included a chapter on the Catholic Church's road to religious freedom. Well, why did I do that? Well, for one thing, I, I was exploring ways in which Islam could um, increase religious freedom and expand the sphere of religious freedom in the book. And that's where I look to people like Mustafa, who's great, a great hero of, of championing uh, religious freedom. But I looked at some of the arguments being made um, kind of in the secular media and the public conversation. And I noticed, and you mentioned this in your introductory remarks, uh, Doug, that people often say um, what Islam really needs is a reformation or what it really needs is an enlightenment. Or yeah, I think you mentioned Second Vatican Council. Uh, I like that last one. Uh, the first two I'm a little bit more dubious of <laughs> um, because I'm not sure that um, those historical events brought freedom, at least in a way that would be appealing to a, a Muslim uh, today. Um, now, the Reformation, I think Protestants can be credited for being some of the pioneers of religious freedom. Locke would be an example, people of his generation. But remember, he came at least 150 years after the uh, beginning of the Reformation. And for a long time, Protestants would advocate, you know, burning heretics and so forth, just as much as Catholics did. And in fact, Catholics and Protestants um, were killing each other and at each other's throats for, uh, for, 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 for that time. So, and it's great we're here now and uh, we're, good, we're good friends and uh, we got through that. We, uh, we figured out a way forward. But, um, but is this something necessarily that uh, is going to be a great model? But then the Enlightenment. Well, Locke was, again, Locke was probably the best of the lot. A couple of questions I might ask about him too. We can get in our Q&A in our conversation. But look at some of the other Enlightenment thinkers. We have, look at Rousseau. He ends um, his social contract with a call for a new civil religion. It wouldn't be Christianity. It would be kind of a, a, a thing that we concoct for our, ourselves. And then he put the death penalty on it if you don't believe it. Because he thought you needed religion to hold society together, but he didn't think Christianity was a good idea or any of the going religions. So that doesn't look too re religiously free. Um, Diderot said we should put the kings and priests, uh, hang them up by their entrails. You've got uh, Hume, he, he wasn't all that big on religious freedom. So most of the Enlightenment thinkers are not great examples of religious freedom. And then, you know, in, in the Muslim world, there's been uh, regimes modeled on the Enlightenment, like Ataturk's Turkey, um, you know, your, your homeland, many others that have been, you know, very much of the view that Islam had to be sidelined and repressed in order to kind of get to modernity following that Enlightenment thinking. 
Well, now the Catholic Church is, uh, you know, was a Johnny come lately. It took us a long time to get around to it until 1965. But um, when we did, we, I, I think the, um, I am pretty proud of the, the document that the church issued, which is called Dignitatis Humanae, um, the, uh, hum, on human dignity. Argument is that, so it fully endorsed the human right of religious freedom um, and said, it did so on the basis of the human, uh, the dignity of the human person as the kind of creature who um, searches for and is fulfilled by, by religion. And um, so it said religion is a good thing, but it has to be a free decision, a free search. And that means also respecting the dignity of people who make different decisions other than Catholicism or even other than religion altogether um, as part of uh, that, uh, respecting the dignity of the person. And in order to do that, the church went back way back in its history and retrieved um, notions that it could use in order to um, defend that. In other words, it didn't take the enlightenment arguments off the shelf or um, you know, I think there were some commonalities with some of the Protestant thinkers, but again, it really looked back, could look back into its tradition. And so I thought that that might be a better kind of pathway ahead for um, Muslims in the sense that um, they could look back to resources in their own tradition, um, the Quran, the Hadith, different historical episodes like you spoke of, which would be a better grounding uh, uh, for religious freedom. And that's really what the Catholic Church did, just to say a couple things about that in my, uh, over a couple minutes. Um, so, you know, in the Middle Ages, uh, and you spoke about that, I roughly agree with the positives and negatives that you talked about, but the church had the idea that church and state would be a partnership in a Christian civilization. And it wanted, really wanted to have a kind of civilization that was thoroughly Christian, and because it said that that kind of thing, would, that would bring people to salvation. So state and church would work together to kind of create the kind of environment that would bring people to salvation. And I think there were a lot of ways in which that was manifested in very beautiful, uh, positive, positive ways. Um, but there's the, you know, the coercion uh, side of things that also um, meant that the state would act as a kind of arm of the church in enforcing um, religious uniformity, against, particularly against um, Christian heretics, that you couldn't compel people who weren't Christians to become um, Christians, but you could, um, the problem with heretics, and again, it was, the idea was not that you would um, coerce them into believing, but the problem with a heretic was that that person sort of brought down everybody else. They sort of ruined the um, spiritual ecology in a sense. Um, Thomas Aquinas used the um, uh, uh, phrase of counterfeit money, the analogy of counterfeit money, kind of ruined the water supply. And uh, so that person was causing a public problem. It would also undermine society because they thought that society depended upon religious uniformity. So it was kind of, it was a crime of sedition as much as it was a religious thing. And so with, with the state um, acting at the behest of the church, you got, you know, the Inquisition over many centuries. Um, you had expulsions and, and pogroms and uh, ghetto, ghettoization. And you had, um, you know, ultimately the religious wars. And so... Um, you know, now for, you know, for a lot of reasons, the medieval experiment, the medieval uh, civilization started to unravel. You started seeing the rise of states and kings who didn't feel uh, strong loyalty or fealty to the Pope. You had the Protestant Reformation that divided the Christian church. Ultimately, then you had the Enlightenment where you had thinkers who were calling Christianity into question altogether and really calling for the state to be a kind of an arm of secularization, at least in some context. I mean, that's what you got in the French Revolution, which was a very deeply based upon a, a secular ideal. They tried to establish an alternative religion, alternative ritual, alternative gods, 
And so Catholics then became kind of, the, you know, the tables were turned. Uh, priests and religious started uh, uh, losing their heads and um, were you know, very much marginalized, lose the status in society. Um, and then, so in, in the 19th century, you hear the popes making these kind of harsh condemnations of, um, of liberalism. You almost think that they got up on the wrong side of the bed or something. You, know, you saw adjectives like putrid and absurd and erroneous and uh, empty for all time. And uh, you know, they don't talk like that anymore. There's something kind of charming <laughs> about it, I think. But um, they didn't like liberalism very much, but, but it's because they viewed it as part of a package of things that were um, tethered with religious skepticism and atheism and kind of a, a breakdown of the medieval synthesis and um, a kind of, they saw it a deeply destabilizing to society. And um, so they, could, they were, had a hard time detaching some of the things like civil rights and religious freedom from this larger package of things that were lopping off the heads of uh, Catholic priests. So fast forward, by, by 1965 then, they managed to come around. And it's fascinating to look at some of the debates at the Second Vatican Council between the skeptics and the proponents of religious freedom. So the skeptics were saying things, kind of like Pat Deneen saying, um, well, if you buy into religious freedom, you're buying into this kind of disintegration of society, the breakdown of morality, unlimited license, um, and so forth. Some of which has frankly come about, culturally speaking. But the the arguments that won the day said, well, look, no, that, that's not what we're advocating. What we're advocating is the civil human right of religious freedom based on the dignity of the person. And unlike the 19th century popes, they could make more of a separation between the civil and human right and then some of the philosophical, cultural, ideological baggage that they didn't want to come with it. The church was still very clear about its moral claims and its spiritual claims and its claims about the, about truth, it didn't back off those, and it didn't adopt a sort of theological liberalism, but rather it adopted a political liberalism of saying yes, that um, you know co coercion of religious faith is wrong, and um, so that's ultimately what I would defend as a liberalism that I think is good for religion, which is this liberalism of political and civil rights, but yet um, and be able to say that's not the same thing as the liberalism of kind of. Uh, absolute individualism, the kind of corrosive individualism, license for everybody, and some of the you know kind of cultural trends uh, we've been seeing. Well, let me uh, kind of ask one question, then we'll move, uh, I think, to the audience. <coughs> but is liberalism, in a sense, the the best political grounding for religious faith? It is. Is it one of several potential? Uh, is it? Are there other political philosophies that might? provide an equally uh, appropriate grounding? I mean, do we look at liberalism as the best, acceptable? Where, where, how do we see it? Is it merely consistent, or is it perhaps the best there? I'm just going to, you know, all of you contribute. Well, I think the term, we should maybe speak on what liberalism means. Uh, today, I mean, as a newcomer to the U.S. scene, I've realized that here liberalism means sometimes something different than what I'm used to. Uh, no, I mean, it means, uh, you know, suppressing free speech and uh, <laughs> supposedly for the sake of, uh, you know, diversity and all that. Uh, and uh, I think here in this panel, I think we're all speaking about classical liberalism. The, the political philosophy, the traditional political philosophy, which advocated uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, equality before law, individual rights, natural rights, limited government, market economy, and, and, and these. Um, now, this, this is what Patrick Deneen is criticizing, or other, some conservative scholars are criticizing. 
This is what Malaysians are condemning as you know, the evil thing. They wouldn't know what happens in US campuses. They're not very knowledgeable about that liberalism. Now, the broad alternatives to this, I mean, and when we say conservatism, for example, in the US, conservatism is actually within this. It's just taking a little more emphasis on traditional values or civil society or family and so on and so forth. This is the Western system. I mean, since, uh, let's say, since the Enlightenment, I mean, especially, well, there was Nazism and fascism, but the Second World War, let's say, consensus in Europe and, and, Europe, uh, and the US as well. Now, the alternatives to this has been either uh, fascism or communism. You've seen the totalitarianism. And I think there is no reason to consider them again. In, 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 we've seen what they do, and on philosophically, we've seen, we've seen it in practice. I think we can speak on different interpretations of liberalism. Uh, I mean, and I think people, we are operating within liberalism. And when someone says, I'm a social democrat, it is a position within liberalism which is more emphasis, make more emphasis on redistribution. When someone says, I'm totally a free market libertarian, it is emphasizing the free market of it and less emphasis, but thinking that it will trickle down and it sees another maybe mechanism for society. So some people are saying now we should trash this out. And I, as someone who has seen the alternatives and who has lived through some of the alternatives, I'm saying, no, no, please don't. Mm -hmm. Let's just think through. Let's see the problems. Well, regarding Islam, uh, many conservative Muslims, Islamists, will typically say, of course, we don't want liberalism. We want Islam. Okay. Well, because they perceive Islam as a political system in itself. What is that political system in itself? I mean, I had this discussion with Islamists, debates all over. I mean, that classical political system, or oh, there will be a caliph. Okay, how does the caliph come to power? Well, in classical Islam, caliph come to power with killing the rivals, and he sat there for, I mean, until he died. <laughs> now, uh, well, there were a few nice caliphs in the beginning, and who came with four of them, uh, from the Sunni perspective, who came with some consultation. After them, the caliph was the guy who killed the other guy and who was there. So is there something ideal about that? To me, that is not an Islamic system. That is a historical experience of Muslims. Muslim societies lived and they had an experience. In that experience, nobody was a liberal democracy. So Muslims had some, somebody called the caliph. So it wasn't divinely mandated. So that's one way of looking at it. Islamists don't accept that. They say our historical experience define our ideal, so we should preserve it today. Some people will say caliph can be elected. Then you ask, elected like once in four years, five years. What about decentralization? What about mayors? The more you ask, actually devolves into something like democracy, for example. Um, I think the main issue in Islam, for Islam and maybe other religions, but especially today Islam, is do we accept a society in people have the full freedom to be religious or not religious. To be religious in a way that is different from what you define as the right religion. And to be immoral according to your standards. Uh, of course, people, there will be certain limits to freedom in terms of violence to other people and disturbing other people's lives and so on and so forth. But, but the, is creating a bad example a good reason to ban something? Mm -hmm. For example, you said, I mean, uh, most traditional Muslim scholars will tell you we should ban alcohol. Actually, I had this discussion recently in California, so I'm based on that saying. We should ban publicly alcohol 
uh, we don't care if people commit sin, but we don't want them to be a bad example to other Muslims. Now, let's take this to the other way around. What about the French secularists who also ban headscarf because it's a bad example for other women? They say, you can wear it at your home, but you can't wear it on the public. I mean, even the French don't say that, but Turkish secularists said that. France, the French secularists will say this in schools, for example, or in bikini, uh, let's say. Yeah. Beaches, they mm -hmm. will ban burkini because it's a bad example or somehow visually disturbs the other people. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are in the winning side of that authoritarian argument, as you said, you can say, yes, let's ban all these bad things that are bad. But what if you are a bad example to society in some other's definition? So I think the more you start to reason from these things, you come to a position, say that, well, then you, sh you can't say this is a bad example. If it's a bad example, you will learn how to ignore it. You will learn how to say, this is a way of life I don't agree with. You can tell your child this is a bad way of life, but you're not going to ban that. If, you, if you're going to ban this, it will be used against you the other way around. Typ uh, typically, Muslim societies like liberalism when they're in the minority. <laughs> uh, and when I say, well, let's take a lesson from this. Maybe we should, you know, we want the right, individual right to wear a headscarf in France or in Quebec these days, which is also banned later the French tradition of laïcité. Mm -hmm. uh, then let's take the individual right to wear whatever you want to Iran and Saudi Arabia, if it's a principle. Mm -hmm. So I think these are the discussions in Islam. But I mean, I don't know what the uh, critics of liberalism are saying. What are they offering for us? I mean, uh, Joe and Dan probably knows this better. Like, mm -hmm. what are the alternatives brought by these critics of liberalism, Joe? Like, that's, that's what's pretty fuzzy. And I guess, uh, I, think, Dan, I think you'll appreciate this. In trying to answer your question, what are the alternatives? At that, uh, in, in class here at King's College where I teach, just this week we, we looked at the uh, end of the Cold War and the amazing trip that the Pope took, Pope John Paul II in mm -hmm. Poland mm -hmm. in 1979. Nine days that shook the world, really mm -hmm. shook the mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. And he kind of became the de facto leader of Poland. The, yeah. Polish, the, the communist Polish authorities, once they set, let him in the country, they realized they made a terrible mistake and they couldn't shut him up. And he's preaching to a million people or more in the squares, open air masses. At the appeal the Pope is making when you read some of the sermons, mm -hmm. what is he calling for at the end of the day? He's calling for classical liberal democratic values which will, give, which will restore the spiritual life, the deeply Christian Catholic life of the nation which mm -hmm. the communist regime had been denying since 1945, since the betrayal of the altar. And it's a, it's a turning point, really, in the West, because Poland then leads the way to the whole democratic revolutions of 1989. And the Pope's visit is absolutely crucial at that moment, but the thing he's calling them back to, it seems to me, is very much like a classical liberal approach to religious liberty, political freedom, economic freedom. It's all there in the Pope's sermons, and it transforms the country. It's an amazing moment. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um the, the Catholic Church has, uh, certainly since the Second Vatican Council, has embraced um, you know, religious freedom as a human right and other human rights as well, and says that these are manifestations of natural law, what the human beings can know by reason. Then I would say also the critical component of the human dignity of the person created in the image of God. And so human rights founded on those things are non-negotiable. And if that's what liberalism means, then yes, it's the best system, it's non-negotiable. We want every human being to have them. Countries where they don't have them, we want them to you know, move toward, towards having them. We want to preserve them where they exist and so forth. So is it the best system? I would say if that's what it means, then, then yes.
But I think, you know, one of the big questions now, though, is, um, you know, what does it take to sustain uh, liberal institutions? And, you know, the, the Catholic view um, would stress the importance of having it based on a kind of morality rooted in human reason and human nature and uh, the, the, the dignity of the person, but would also caution that when, um, you, when it becomes put on a different footing, say, um, a kind of relativism or uh, deep skepticism or a kind of, um, you know, thoroughgoing self-expressive individualism. I think of, you know, Anthony Kennedy's famous passage in the yeah. um, Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision in 1992 where he said the kind of right of every individual to define the mystery of uh, his own existence, right? Well, if it's, if it's just that, I mean, what if the mystery of my own existence calls for running roughshod over others? And, and if there's no basis for the rights, then, you know, then, then you know, how can they be sustained? So I think, um, you know, that kind of strong moral uh, philosophical foundation is needed to uh, sustain it. And maybe that's the kind of issue that we're, we're really wrestling with uh, today. I'd like to open it up uh, to, to the audience. If, uh, in asking a question, if you could... I, Identify yourself, and I'd ask for questions, not, uh, not speeches, please, and so we can get most of the uh, conversation from our participants here. And I think we do, I think, do we have a, a microphone? Yeah. Here we have a microphone coming, so, down here in front. Down here, the second row. Middle. Yes. Uh, you've all talked about religious freedom, and I, I noticed that no one talks about the fact that all religions basically don't want to be challenged. They don't want to be subject to real debate. They provide a lot of intellectual arguments to support themselves, but they're not really open to debate. I think that's, and I'd say, that's a form of, of non-religious freedom. Um, yeah, maybe it's not exactly enforced by the, by the government, but um, I find that to be really uh, a, a problem. And I wonder if, if you see that as, like I do, as a form of religious unfreedom. If I could ask a quick follow-up to that question. Um, I guess I want to understand better what you mean by um, different religious beliefs, whether it's Christianity or Protestants, Catholics, not open to debate. Help me understand what you mean by that when you say they're not open to debate. Do you have something concrete in your mind about that? What? Well, if you, if you start... Hey, microphone, please, please, please use the microphone. He's got that. If one starts to say, relig for example, makes an argument that, that how can you believe in religion or you know something like that, um, all of them shut it off very quickly. In other words, if you're challenging the very essence of religion, not atheism, I've always thought that's a false argument. The, the real argument is, do you believe in religion or do you not believe, whatever religion? And that kind of debate, I think, is, is not well received by any religion. I mean, is that clear to you now what I'm saying? Th it's a little clear, and I'm going to have, I'll let Dan jump in here. I'll, I'm going to just mention uh, you know, some of the great figures in both the Catholic and the Protestant traditions uh, in ancient medieval life and in modern life. You think of an Augustine and the city of God as a response 
to the great challenges to Christianity, the great intellectual challenges. I'm thinking as a Protestant in the 20th century of a C.S. Lewis who challenges a very skeptical culture, Western culture, uh, secular Britain and beyond with an engagement, a real intellectual engagement and a real willingness to take on the tough questions. But I'll pass it over to Dan on, yeah. on Augustine and others, if you like. And I would argue something, something similar. I think that, um, yes, it's true that, uh, you know, in, in the spirit of your question, yes, it's true there's been, a, you know, a tradition of censorship and, and so forth. Uh, the Catholic Church has uh, um, been, been involved in it. In fact, probably until about 50 years ago, it was about 1967, I think, when it finally kind of renounced uh, censorship. But, but on the other hand, uh, you know, for the last 500 years, um, Catholicism, Christianity has been intensely criticized from uh, uh, interlocutors, beginning with, at least with Hobbes and Spinoza, with uh, the historicity of the Bible, the possibility of miracles, the divinity of Christ, the existence of God. Virtually everything has been subject to withering scrutiny. But there have also been intense efforts by Christian voices to offer answers to these um, our, our arguments, to offer them on the basis of reason, on the basis of arguments for, for revelation. And, you know, I, I mean, you could see a kind of um, intensive conversation and yeah. dialogue in a sense. Hasn't always been done under the auspices of freedom. Yeah. I'll certainly concede that. But certainly if you look at the kind of large deposit of intellectual conversation, I think there's been, a, you know, great efforts on the part of <laughs> those to criticize and then the parts of uh, Christians to, to, to offer answers. I could say, uh, I mean, your, your observation is, I think, quite true for many religious believers out there, especially in the Muslim world today, but not all, I think, religious voices. I think in our traditions, all of, in both Christianity and Islam, there are more dogmatic approaches, which want to impose the truth and proclaim it and silence the uh, opposite views. But there are also other approaches that are more open to arguing for that. That's whole the idea of apologetics comes from that, right? I mean, of course, religions believe that they have the truth and they want to defend it, but they can defend it through argumentation, through discussion, through debate, or they can defend it by silencing. And that silencing is there in religious history. I'll, it's there, I'll, I'll guarantee you, in Saudi Arabia, in Iran, in Sudan, in Malaysia, many places in the world in the Muslim world today, but it can come out from any, any worldview. Um, I mean, any, any worldview can become dogmatic and trying to silence dissent. I mean, secular ideologies do that. Well, I, I mean, I, I would mean, say for U.S. to, like, I've seen campuses which want safe spaces without any, <laughs> any alternative views. And I think that's not too different from dogma. I mean, they don't jail people or, you know, put them into torture chambers. That's nice. But still, that kind of one orthodoxy, whatever that is, is, I think, a human tendency. And we should challenge that. But it's not, 
inherent to, I think, any religion or worldview, but it can be there for sure. Now, I think there's a difference between an uncomfortableness about talking about religion because you know, that's a perfect way to ruin your Thanksgiving dinner versus absent coercion, religious leaders cannot assume they will be believed. Go to a Christian bookstore, there's a major section of apologetics. Mm -hmm. People who evangelize know they have to address those issues. Mm -hmm. And I think the decline of Christianity is an ex the, the accept broad cultural value in America shows that you cannot assume any kind of uh, assumption of uh, you know, your authority, that in fact you have to be prepared to address it. I do think there's a, a certain element of people don't want to get into that because it gets very messy, but I don't, I don't see how there's a lack of freedom there. It's the freedom that prevents coercion that requires religious leaders to try to justify what they're preaching. If they have coercion, then yes, don't bother me if I can throw you out, but if you lo the moment you lose that, then I think you have to have the argument. We can get the, yeah. Thanks for the question. Up there. We also identify. No, actually, okay. That's that's fine. You can. Then we'll go to toward the back. Sorry. That's okay. No problem. Uh, many of the points you addressed were eloquently uh, defended by John Stuart Mill in his classic on liberty. And what I was thinking, especially, you mentioned the talkful, how he uh, on the tyranny of the majority. And uh, he, um, as you know, Mill, absolute right of self-regarding actions and beliefs and so forth. We'll go into that. But I was thinking there's there's an alarming tendency in this country on both sides of the political spectrum of intolerance of people's beliefs and an inability or an unwillingness to address their beliefs on rational terms, as Mill mm -hmm, thought would mm -hmm. strengthen reason, would strengthen belief mm -hmm. in your own views, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What, and, and, and while engaging with others. This is not happening in this country now very often, mm -hmm. and th th there's a tyranny of majority on campuses, there's a, a tyranny of majority on political parties, and it's stifling real the essence of a liberal Western democratic ethos. Any comments? Well, I'm not going to comment on that. You guys know this country better. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, the role of reason. Maybe it's part of the, the, the big question you're asking: the role of reason in the whole uh, faith commitment at all. Go ahead, Dan. Well, yeah, I mean, it just I mean, wouldn't say much because I'm in deep deep agreement with you. I think that this is being lost. The, the, the that very notion of the free uh, pursuit of the truth through inquiry, through mutual. Uh, giving and taking of reasons and reputation and, and all that that involves, I think is just critical to uh, a liberal society, a democratic society. I mean, um, again, in the Catholic tradition, one points to all the censorship and so forth, but we also have a deep tradition in the universities of this kind of, of, this kind of inquiry. I'm looking at you know, yeah. Thomas Aquinas and the kind of that. I mean, the, the medieval uh, church kind of gave us that system of inquiry. Yeah. Now they needed to kind of relax some of the boundaries over the years. <laughs> but, um, but that way of thinking about things and going about problems and, um, is, uh, is absolutely essential. And that, that part of the West, I think, is critical for, for sustaining free institutions. Yeah, one quick follow-up on that, and thank you for that question. Uh, without turning this into a little Bible study, there is that uh, uh, tremendous moment in the Gospels when Jesus is asked about the greatest commandments, and he comes back with, you know, love, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Mind, engaging the brain. And I think that when the Christian tradition has been at its strongest and its best and its most helpful, 
the mind and the heart have been kind of working together, right? There's a wonderful line from C.S. Lewis as he's observing this kind of um, anti-intellectual stuff and the, and the drifting away from reason and rational argument. There's a line where he says, nonsense in the intellect draws evil after it. Nonsense in the intellect draws evil after it. I think, boy, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. The, the nonsense in, in their intellectual life right now is just inviting all kinds of mischief into our society. So I want more reason, not less reason, as a person of faith. More reason. Thank you for that. The, the fifth row, back, you know, back straight back, if we can get uh, that extra set of, you know, back, straight back. Hi, thank you for the presentation. It's been very interesting. Um, so, Daniel, you mentioned how um, in the Catholic tradition there's an emphasis on you still need a kind of basic moral framework that's open to natural law and ideas of certain mm -hmm. basic non-negotiable principles. Um, so I just kind of want to push that question a little further. Do you guys think it's possible to create, to base a political system that's totally value neutral? Um, and if not, how do you create a system that still isn't, that, that doesn't eventually lead into some form of um, theocracy or adopt some form of religion as a basis for its laws? Mm. Good question. Mm -hmm. Who wants to? It's an excellent question. I mean, in my view, um, natural law and the notion that there are things that can be known through reason and you know, moral norms and human goods and human dignity and so forth, I think are critical for a free society, for a rule of law, for human rights, and so forth. And now the claim of natural law is that there are certain things that human beings can know unaided, so to speak. You know, Even if their, they are infidels, right? They can yeah, know that. Right. <laughs> they have the capacities, right? Um, and so so on, on that reading, one would say that through natural law, one doesn't necessarily strictly need God and so forth. And yet, I, I, in my view, I also think that um, well, that's true that natural law w without God is, is gonna likely to uh, go astray. Um, I mean, uh, for different reasons. Um, you know, nat nat people can also be very much uh, mistaken and, and, and go, go against natural law. But I think that um, God and the kind of religious uh, framework can uh, serve as a kind of anchor or the kind of uh, something that can kind of cement and help, help to lock it in. Um, no, no pun on lock there. So, uh, but uh, the, the, well, for one thing, God gives the kind of basis or grounding or foundation for natural law. I mean, in the Catholic tradition, natural law is a participation in the eternal law, the logos, which is which is God. Um, in a certain way, I think revelation, the the revelations of the prophets, um, you know, uh, you know, culminating with Jesus in the Christian tradition, you know, kind of also speak to natural law and uh, you know, give it that divine command and imprimatur that. That, that strengthens it. And, um, you know, so, um, you know, most or ordinary people don't have time to kind of get a PhD and, and figure out natural law. It's not clear whether the PhD would even lead that direction. So we have divine revelation. We have religious institutions. We have these things that kind of serve to reinforce it. And so uh, even though natural law can be known unaided, I, I'm also, uh, for different reasons, skeptical that natural law without the religious framework is going to, is going to hold up. That's the Ibn Rushd argument. He said uh, reason and Averroes, or as other known, and he said both reason and religion are the ways to the same truth, but not everybody can do philosophy. Yeah. So for right. the common people, you know, there is a religious way, but for the philosophers, they could figure out even if they didn't have yeah. religion. And, and not everything, but the moral truths and, and the ordering of society, and so they could figure out. So 
But there's another way of looking. There's another teaching which says, without religion, there's only darkness. Without religion, there's no knowledge, no wisdom. And, and of course, that perspective wants to impose religion too because it, and doesn't engage in any conversation with people who are outside of the religion because only to convert them maybe they can. But yes, natural law, which is a very strong Catholic uh, tradition, I think is important. In Islam, there are traces of that, which I think is important to revitalize. I don't know whether in, in Protestantism there's that approach that strongly. There certainly is natural law there, guys, and I'm, I'm not a philosopher. Um, I, I'm the great-grandson of a baker, the grandson of a barber, and the son of an egg man from Brooklyn. Uh, <laughs> we don't do philosophy in the Lacanti family. Um, so, as a, you, so you've asked a great question. It's a question for political philosophers, and I'm not one of them, so I'm out of my lane here, but I'll just say this quickly as an historian. Take the American experiment. The founders, if you look at their writings, read them, and the, the early uh, constitutions, uh, state constitutions, the assumption was you couldn't really sustain freedom, democratic, republican freedom, without virtue. You had to have civic virtue, personal virtue, and civic virtue. You've got to have a virtuous people, not just a good constitution. The, all the founders thought that from Franklin to Madison to Jefferson. You've got to have civic, you've got to be self-governing, you've got to have virtue. Well, how do you get virtue across a republic? The founders, to a person, really believed you couldn't really do it over the long haul without some religious belief. It doesn't mean that atheists can't be great, virtuous citizens. They can. But the American founders didn't really think they could build this republic on the backs of atheists. So religion, uh, freedom requires virtue, according to the founders, and virtue requires faith. But what kind of faith? It has to be uncoerced faith. Uncoerced, genuine, authentic belief separation of church and state. That's the eternal triangle, it seems to me, of the American founding, which probably helps to explain the stability of the thing, the longevity of the thing, even though it's under crisis right now. I'll get to you, but I want to go and get out of the main lane here. Right here, please. Now over to the left. Uh, my question is related to some of what you were saying. In last... 200 or so years, there are a lot of advances in scientific understanding. Whether it's evolution, which says that a yeah, human being as a species are no more than, say, 300,000 years old. Or in the last couple of decades, that there are a lot of planets where there might be life and all, and they're coming up all the time. Why are we still sticking to that? that unless there is this organized religion and all, there is no virtue or there's little virtue and why don't we emphasize more on the, call it natural law or science or scientific beliefs, which are more rational rather than faith-based and all. So, even today, uh, you cannot think of like contesting an election unless you, Prove your credential that you are a very religious person or you, you follow this faith. Why it is not like, why we are not moving into a more uh, scientific kind of direction? Who wants to take that? <laughs> <laughs> I can take that. Go, go we need some yes-no questions. That's what we need. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. That. Go ahead. Well, I mean, our understanding of science certainly improved dramatically. We owe that to the Enlightenment that has been bashed here a little bit. So let me, you know, uh, partly, you know, but there are dark side of the Enlightenment. I admit that too. But yes, of course, science dramatically improved, and we have a much better sense of the world and our nature and the universe and everything. But science cannot explain to us 
certain questions that are not scientifically measurable. Like, why do we exist? Uh, where did we come from? Well, it can explain what there was a Big Bang, but was there something beyond that? Uh, so, and science cannot give us necessarily uh, moral ideas. It can teach us, you know, how to break the atom, but whether to use it on a civilian population or not, that's a moral decision. Uh, so I think science, religions should consider science, the findings of science, so they have to reinterpret their traditional understandings in the light of science. For example, evolution, the history of, um, theory of evolution shows that you know, species had a history that is not 5,000 years old or, you know. So we have to re-understand our text maybe less literally based on these definitions and a lot of traditions do, some struggle with that. But it would be wrong to think that science gives us all the answers so we don't need anything else. Uh, I think human nature is, uh, has yearnings and desires and that go beyond the, the realm of science. So that's why religion will be always with us. So that's why we should think how religion is a force for positive. There was a thinking in early 19th century, sorry, late 19th, early 20th century that science would finish off religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, that was in prediction. Yeah. Well, it didn't happen. Uh, some people think it didn't happen because people are too dumb and they don't get, I mean, I would say it didn't happen because it was not going to happen because science is very important. We should have a more scientific view of the world. So that's why we should not be afraid of vaccines or, you know, there are a lot of kind of more, more scientific view of the world is necessary in all religious traditions. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not going to replace religion, which gives meaning, which science cannot. Excellent point, my friend. If I could just maybe follow up with a quick, or just supplement, just quickly as an historian. The rise of the scientific revolution, the scientific quest, if you really kind of think about it and study it carefully, the early scientists, Copernicus, Kepler, Galileo, Newton, all of them had a deeply religious, and some of them explicitly Christian worldview. In other words, they all believed in an intelligent, orderly, rational God who was actually engaged, active in his creation. All, all of them believed that. Now, I know the Catholic Church has come under criticism with Galileo and all that, but at the end of the day, Galileo was a believer. The guy is a believer. And they really thought that if they studied nature, they would learn more about God because God wrote two books. The scripture, according to these early scientists, he wrote the scripture, but he also wrote the book of nature, two books. Study the one book and you'll understand the other book. Mm -hmm. So the scientific quest, that scientific, it grew out of a deeply religious, theistic understanding of the universe. You can't explain it really apart from that. Mm -hmm. I, and I'd be in broad, broad agreement. Uh, I would even add to your list um, that the Big Bang was uh, discovered by a Catholic priest, you know, a believing Catholic priest. From but, Belgium, right? Yes, 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 yes I, think, yes, I think that's yes. right, yes. Which kind of belies the notion yeah. that um, you know, the Catholic Church was trying to uh, deny an early, you know, uh, date of the discovery of the universe and, and so forth. It's always, um, I would argue that the church is um, open to and is not threatened by any, um, any scientific uh, uh, discovery. Um, interestingly, on the evolution, um, or the kind of notion that the church had a, I mean, that the world has a very early uh, origin, maybe 4,000 years ago, it's interesting that this wasn't sort of part of the, traditional Christian belief, this didn't arise until like, say, the, the 1600s, right? And happened in certain kinds of theological contexts where somebody decided to look at the scriptures and figure out that it was 4,000 days ago and so forth. But, um, you know, Augustine in the uh, fourth century did not think that, um, 
you know, that the universe was created in six days or 4,000 years ago. And uh, he said, we just don't know that. We're not, we're not told that. And uh, so it was the earlier, you know, that, that was actually kind of a late invention, this notion of the Christians who think that, the, you know, the, the young earth. It was an usher, sort of right? It was a bishop called Usher who yeah, calculated. An, an Irish, uh, Anglican, yeah. Irish Anglican bishop. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And, <laughs> he gave uh, the dates. It was created like 7,000 years ago. Yeah. At this time, the yeah, whole he, universe he was created. had it really, really, really pinned down. Yeah. That's, that's right. Yeah. But it's not a traditional foundational yeah. uh, Christian belief. He wasn't very accurate about that. <laughs> <laughs> you got it down to the hour, too, like 3.15 yeah. p.m. or something. Yeah, something like that. That's right. Yes. Good question. Yeah. Go, to, go to the far left, up, up at the top. <laughs> I forgot about him, yeah, sure. <laughs> Hi, um, Margaret Newell. Um, I, I'm coming from a Catholic perspective, and I think a lot of what all of you have said today, it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I do perceive that there is a bit of a, what I believe is a misperception, but maybe other people think it's right, that... Um, the practice of faiths is somehow inconsistent with a liberal approach to society in terms of because certain people, for faith-based reasons, believe that certain acts or you know things that attitudes are sinful, for instance, that that is um, you know butts up against a liberal society in a very direct way, and I, I don't know whether you guys think there's anything to that or how to address that or, or if that gives you any ideas you would like to share. Who would like to? I mean, in recent years, um, what the Catholic Church is confronting is, um, you know, not so much it's the fact that people in the society <coughs> hold views of what is sinful or right that are different from the Catholic Church, but we see, I would argue, new efforts by the state to try to sort of... Um, impose uh, beliefs that are directly contrary to the Catholic Church on Catholic institutions. So I come from Notre Dame. And so, you know, the Catholic Church uh, officially authoritatively teaches that uh, contraception is, is immoral. Obviously, that's um, something not shared by many other Americans. And in fact, the polls show most uh, practicing Catholics don't agree to it or adhere to it. But nevertheless, Catholic institutions like mine at Notre Dame and other Catholic institutions want to govern themselves um, you know, consistently with that, right? And so um, when we then see that there are regulations saying that, um, you know, if you don't offer, uh, offer this to your employees in a ways that go against your conscience, then uh, you're going to be subject to exorbitant fines. And many of these institutions were facing closing their doors. And so you see um, this broad coalition of Catholic and Protestant colleges and other kinds of institutions then, you know, then suing the government. Um, I mean, more recently, that's kind of where the, your question where this really comes into play was, it's not, so it's not just the fact that there are people out there in the society who disagree, but rather it's that the contrary values are being promoted through a kind of secular establishment in a way that I would argue that's where, um, you know, that's also a matter of freedom. So historically, the Catholic Church had to come to terms with freedom for others, but now hmm. we're seeing freedom from the more secular direction yeah. being, you know, where, where the church's uh, freedom is being threatened, I would argue. Yeah, but that's yeah. not the liberalism we are finding as yeah. admirable. I mean, right. that's a yeah. different kind of liberalism that has evolved in the U.S. What, 
the liberalism we're speaking about is about limited government, and the, 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 the government wouldn't have the right to impose those values yes. that it finds as ideal <coughs> on, on institutions yes. in the ideal sense. Yes, and maybe a quick supplement. It's a terrific question. Again, thinking historically here, when I think about every great advance, particularly in the United States, but more broadly in the West, but every advance in human rights and human dignity, a more inclusive, pluralistic society, defending uh, the rights of people of all backgrounds, all races, every advance that way, virtually every one, people of religious belief and religious conviction have been at the forefront. I mean, think about the abolition movement in the 19th century. Then you go right up to Martin Luther King the Civil Rights Movement, the Reverend Martin Luther King, right? So religious leaders, people of deep religious conviction, they've been at the forefront of these movements, challenging the establishment. And that seems to me one of the most useful functions of the religious communities is to have a sort of prophetic voice, to have the civic space, civic freedom, to offer a prophetic voice and challenge the establishment, as some of these great religious figures did in some of the most progressive, uh, far-reaching, and, and effective social movements, social justice movements that, that this country has known, religious people at the heart of the thing, so. Do the third row here. Thank you. Um, it's a very timely discussion. The Gallup poll just recently showed that um, those identifying as liberal has um, increased, um, and especially, I believe, in the Democratic Party, which would have interesting implications for everybody. Um, I wonder, though, um, we didn't hear enough today, I think, about those who have religious beliefs, especially those in the religious hierarchy or religious conservatives, who do actually believe that liberalism is a threat and why they would believe it's a threat. Perhaps Patrick um, Deenan would have been a good person to have on the panel to actually <laughs> articulate why he sees it as a problem. I would posit that one of the reasons why religious conservatives see liberalism as a threat is that liberalism is very cl closely related to the idea of true secularism. Secularism being freedom of religion, but freedom from religion. And when we have a situation where we have freedom of religion and freedom from religion, I think then we don't end up with religious authorities being able to influence laws. Yeah. For example, religious authorities like the Catholic hierarchy are not just against contraception when they have to pay for it as part of health insurance, but sometimes are against contraception being available in society generally, or abortion being not available, or limiting divorce, or other freedoms that people want to enjoy. So I think that there's an inherent conflict between religious conservatives, um, those in a hierarchy of religion, not those who actually practice it. Catholics use contraception, Catholics have divorces, Catholics are gay. So the idea maybe has to more to do with religious conservative control of society and liberalism as a threat to that. Who would like to? I mean, I would say on secularism, I would distinguish between, uh, I mean, uh, it was actually Pope Benedict XVI who, who made a distinction between a, a positive secularism, what he called healthy secularism, and then a negative secularism. So positive secularism means that you have religious freedom for everybody, and you have a kind of separation of roles of church and state. Right, so certain thing, roles that the church is not playing in terms of exercising direct political authority, um, and that's kind of what historically what what eventually came about. What, in the best sense, is the separation of church and state. But then there's a negative secularism, which is uh, involves an attempt by governments to 
kind of marginalize uh, religion and um, keep religion as, as much uh, out of society as possible. And that's the French model, the French Revolution, the French Third Republic, in many places in the Muslim world, Ataturk's Turkey, many Arab states, um, and so forth. That's the kind of negative secularism which wants to kind of push religion aside. But within positive secularism, I think it's perfectly legitimate for the church and religious institutions to seek to try to um, persuade and to try to shape society, you know, through persuasion, through even lobbying for legislation as part members of, the, of democracy. They're part of the democracy. They can certainly speak to what government ought to look like, what legislation ought to look like, to say this is a vision for society that we would like to see. But they're accepting limits to what their authority is uh, uh, to bring that about. So, yeah. Yeah, I, a quick supplement. It's a terrific question. And um, I absolutely agree with much of uh, Patrick Deneen's critique of where we are right now in terms of the radical individualism, people just unhinged from any kind of moral commitments, communities, and all the rest of it, and the assault uh, on religious communities. I, I, I get that. I'm with him on that. Where I just have to disagree profoundly is somehow the assumption he makes, and it really is an assumption. It's not traced out at all historically. The assumption is that Lockean liberalism at its root gave us this. I just think when you look at the, at the historical record honestly and, and thoroughly, what you'll see is these early uh, advocates for a more liberal democratic order, they wanted to see religious belief, religious commitment as the foundation for a more just and pluralistic society. It was never freedom unrestrained. It was, I mean, it goes, in my mind, it goes back to kind of Martin Luther in some ways. My conscience is captive to the word of God. It's not unrestrained conscience. It's anchored in something transcendent, the scriptures itself. And it seems to me that is, th th those are the, uh, the roots and the origins of the liberal democratic project. You've got to anchor the political liberalism in, a, in biblical morality and biblical constraints. That's Lockean liberalism. So I don't see the logical, rational, or historical connection between where we are right now, libertinism, and Lockean liberalism. That's just an assumption, and it's a slur that I just can't accept, and I just think it's bad history, and it's not gonna help us get out of the current mess that we're in. But thanks for the question. You go up to the, the far back over there. Yeah, hi. I, I love the expression freedom of conscience, and granted, Conscience is something that has to be, I don't know if it's, it's a mystery in a way. I love mysteries. Whether it's grown, whether it's developed, sometimes it comes about in a lifetime of making mistakes and you discover your conscience. Some people in traditions would say it has to be formed. Yeah. So there's a question, who is the arbitrator of forming that conscience or is it a process sometimes separate? And I think at times religion can form a womb for the development of conscience, but at some point it might also become a tomb. Because anything that does not fit into that womb is killed off and becomes stillborn. Some people emerge from that, even transcend it. But if you're very afraid of that process, you're going to kill off anything that does not fit into the religious authoritarian view. Mm. So it's very delicate. And also, if you have a society, you have to teach children something. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at what point do you permit someone to discover the freedom of their own conscience? We've been thinking in this moment of the Amish who permit their children at age 18 to leave community to figure out whether they're Amish or not. Yes. Of course, they excommunicate them if they're not. Yes. 
But you know how? But do let's we let them get to it. We're, we're near the end, so I'd like to. It's a great point. Let me say this. And yeah. Then, well, we know, should do a symposium on this question. Yes. It's like, yes. Fabulous Excellent. question. Yeah. I want to make the argument uh, historically here uh, that the Christian faith, at its core, in its beginnings, wants wants to honor that individual question of conscience. And I'll just give you one little biblical example here. There's a there's kind of that famous encounter of the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, you know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And, it, and the scripture says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then he says to him, sell everything and then come follow me. Sell everything and follow me. It's an invitation, right? An invitation to go on an adventure of a lifetime with Jesus. And we know what the guy does if you read that passage in the Gospels. What does he do? It says he went away sad because he had great wealth. There's no coercion. It's an invitation. Mm-hmm. He gets a call, a personal call from Jesus to follow him, to, to, to join the adventure of a lifetime, and he won't do it, the young man, because he thinks the cost is too high, and Jesus lets him go. He just lets him go his own way, as far as we can tell from the text. Mm-hmm. Freedom of conscience. That's at the core, it seems to me, in so many ways of the gospel message. Mm-hmm. I'm just writing a new book right now, which is a chapter on conscience in the Islamic tradition, and... I think in legalistic religions, and that is true for Islam and Judaism, sometimes you might have this tension of conscience on being here, and then there's a legal you know, verdict here. And I think a healthy way to solve this problem is to have a healthy dynamic between the two. But law can be sometimes used to silence conscience. And that is what we're seeing in, you know, in large parts of the Muslim world where you have theocracies, where law is used and God says it, so finish, that's it. And your conscience doesn't matter. But so to be able to solve this problem, you should have a theology which allows conscience in the first place. Mm-hmm. And in Islam, there are theological perspectives that allow that. There are theological perspectives that do not give much room for that. And that's a critical issue, actually. I mean, that's a big topic that we should, you know, really talk about more. Maybe it's not the perfect place for it. But thanks for raising it. And I'm writing a new book. You know, you'll, you'll probably know, know about it. So. And you can pre-order the book right now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> We're near the end. This gentleman's had his hand up a lot. So if he just a quick question and quick response. And lady here. Sorry. Thank, thank you for the presentation. That was really informative. Uh, so my question is that when we talk about the relevance of liberalism to religion, do you think it's important to make a distinction between, uh, say, monotheism and pantheism or you know paganism? Uh, if that's the case, do you think liberalism or secularism is less relevant to a society that is, say, polytheistic or pantheistic? Good question. Thank you. That's a territory we didn't get into, right? Like, <laughs> we buried in our own traditions. I mean, uh, I don't see why polytheistic or pantheistic society would be against uh, liberalism. I mean, liberal values are valid there as well. Still, the idea of the human individual, and uh, we just haven't, you know. I mean, I personally haven't studied too much on prospects of liberalism in India, for example. Um, but for example, I know in India the advance of liberalism has been helpful for some human rights issues like sati. You know, in India, there was the idea of wife burning, it was called. When a man died, the wife was thought she should you know, jump into the fire and kill herself, and, or forced to do so. So, uh, I mean, 
with, with all the condemnations of British colonialism, I mean, the British said, no, this is not going to happen anymore. So that was a liberal imposition on a traditional culture that didn't have human rights idea in that sense. I mean, but in, in the same thing would be true for female genital mutilation, which is happening in some Muslim society. Not all, but very some local Muslim societies today. It happened in other cultures as well. So there are these issues. Um, I think every culture can come, can come with a baggage. Uh, cultures have their heritage. There are great things in their heritage. They might have terrible things. There were cultures who did human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. you know, glad that's eradicated you know, in the world. Christianity had a role in eradicating that, I think, in Latin America at least. Uh, so um, the question is, though, is universe, is liberalism and human rights-ism, as they call it in Malaysia, <laughs> is that a universal idea or is it just a Western, that white male you know, idea? Well, I believe it's universal. I hope it is universal. Because then we will end up with culture saying that, well, we kill our wives when we die, so that's our culture. Or we have slavery, that's our culture. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't, I mean, monotheistic or polytheistic cultures can have their own starting points, but uh, I believe in heading towards a universalistic idea of human rights, which, which will, of course, have different interpretations in a certain way, but not sacrificing sanctity of life and other human values. I think, I think that this is right. Many religions have resources for um, the kinds of values that are embedded in the liberal constitutional democracy and so forth. I do think, though, there is something particularly powerful about um, religions that affirm a, a creator, a transcendent creator God. So you have a God who is outside of the universe, who has established the universe, sustains the universe, who, um, to whom every individual is eventually accountable, right? And uh, there's something about that that kind of creates some, that every government, every institution is now accountable to something far larger than itself, right? And it, there's something about that that I think tends to relativize all hierarchies, all claims to power, and so forth in a way that can, you know, sustain some of the things that, the, the you know, notion of uh, liberalism's limit, uh, notion of limits on power, right? I think that's much, it, it's strongly supported by, you know, the, the notion of a transcendent God to which we're all, all uh, accountable, I do think it's also uh, worth pointing out that if you look at, um, say, in the last 150 years, if you were to look at, the, the, say, the top 15 atrocities, you know, Holocaust and Rwanda and so forth, I would argue that virtually all of them were perpetrated by governments or parties who had thrown off God, who were secular, often very deeply anti-religious, trying to um, establish something where religion had no place where you, you no longer have that kind of accountability, I think it uh, unleashes the kind of, um, you know, worse sorts of uh, claims that then he, humans make on behalf of themselves. Joe, do you want to? <clears throat> good. All good. I'm sorry, we've come to the end of the proceedings. Uh, you know, I'd ask, please give a round of applause to our participants. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, very good.